0: I'm Lisa Held, a food journalist and podcast host, presenting Behind the Label with American Humane. Produced by Heritage Radio Network for Springer Mountain Farms, this podcast series dives into what the American Humane certified label really means. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. This week on Meat and 3, we're spotlighting the people who prepare our meat before it reaches our plates. We hear from whole animal butchers, the brains behind a meat vending machine, California cattle ranchers, and a master of charcuterie who isn't using meat at all. It's like a smoked and grilled uh, center stock of the broccoli, and then it gets uh, finished with some mustard barbecue sauce and sauerkraut.
1: Ranching and farming being as difficult as it is, you know, it's just one thing after another. And at some point you just give up. I had a wild idea that if I learned butchery, maybe I could start to be kind of a link
0: in the supply chain. Listen to Meet and Three, HRN's weekly food news roundup wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Hello, this is Dana Cowan and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I interview someone who inspires me with their words of wisdom. And today, these words of wisdom are from a spectacular writer as well as a world-renowned baker. My guest today is Lisa Donovan, who's just published a book, Our Lady of Perpetual Hunger. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you, Dana. Very excited to finally be on here with you. I'm so excited to have you. I read the book and I really felt like the themes and sub-themes that I was excited to explore with you today are about motherhood, womanhood, and money. Some really, really big topics. And I guess I want to jump right in with this notion of motherhood, because throughout the book, you're defining yourselves in terms of being a daughter, in terms of being a mother, and the roles that played in your life. Maybe we could just start with your family, start with your mom and the heritage that you were born into and the ways in which that's shaped you as a human and a writer and a baker. Oh, that that is jumping right into the deep end. So thank you. (laughs) Um, You know,
1: this was hard to write because I I think the, the tropes are tropes for a reason. And the old trope of, you know, mothers and daughters having these occasionally fraughtful or complicated or simply just complex relationships is not untrue of mine and my mother's relationship. We somehow managed to be simultaneously very close to one another. And I'm madly in love with her as a daughter and also still can sort of hold this understanding of the things that are very different for me. My drive and my ambition and my goals have always been not only just a curiosity to my mother, but also a source of sort of frustration for her. I think there's a real divide in what I need to feel like an accomplished human than what she ever needed. And so we've sort of had that expanse between us as I've maneuvered and moved my way through my younger and middle uh, adult life and those kinds of things I mean just to sort of speak frankly about it you know create division between women and I think so much of this book was me trying to figure out why it's so hard for women to be present for other women in, in certain ways especially familial women and so so much of this was me trying to sort of untangle the stories that my mother comes from that maybe could be the root cause of how we just sort of couldn't ever quite get in in line with each other as far as an understanding of what we each valued. And and that's not to say that we haven't had a deeply loving relationship. But I I think I I crave uh, something that's hard for her to provide, which is sort of more intimacy and more sort of her real identification of who I am. I feel like a lot of mothers of that generation sort of vaguely see their daughters and and, and instead of exactly seeing their daughters. So, you know, I really was trying to have a, a real frank conversation with myself about why that was and how I
2: sort of could heal that for the both of us. And when you talk about the generation your mother comes from and her circumstances specifically, like what do you think her experience was that made your ambition difficult to stomach or to honor or to see?
1: I think that women of my mother's generation and of our class structure as well. My family is incredibly lively and wonderful and and. Interesting and dynamic in so many ways, but we're not a legacy family, we're not an Ivy League family. Still, I'm the only woman to go to college in both sides of my family. My father is the first person to graduate from college on both sides of my family. He's the only one with a PhD, and he dropped out of high school at 17 to marry my mom. And I come from this world where there just weren't a lot of expectations built into people in general, I think. And my parents escaped that. My parents actively made a decision which I've always honored to uh, leave that space of sort of this gets tricky for me because I I find so much value in working class I am a working class person and I think there's so much value and and it's so important to talk and protect the working class especially right now but I did have bigger aspirations I always knew I wanted to write I always knew I wanted to travel I had this sort of much bigger uh, expectation for myself than anyone ever even put upon me I just sort of came equipped with it and so i was always sort of trying to struggle with stay close be here live nearby have all the babies there were little things like hanging baby clothes in my closet the second i was of age that kind of thing like she was ready for grandbabies and i was 16 years old and there were already grandbaby clothes being hung up in my closet as if that were some sort of like message to me and it was probably a very indirect sort of thing for her Uh, And that was the way that she communicated support to me you know which was like I'm here we're going to do this and I wanted something very different and I did have the kids but I've traveled with them and I move around and it's really important to me to not just sort of live next door to her and have it be enough to live in a a one little small town and raise a bunch of kids it just was never my dream and that is very much what she loves and who she is and she was such a gracious and generous mother and very dedicated to that work so we had this great expanse between us where she couldn't quite figure out why I ever wanted to work so hard on something that wasn't what she did and I think also too and this isn't just specifically about my mom you know I speak to a lot of my friends who are my age who have mothers my mother's age and a little older just about this sort of strange idea that somehow we're doing Our work to spite them or to be as different or get as far away from them as we can to foster some sort of expanse, some sort of division. Um, And that's also something I really wanted to address in this book, which was none of my life was at my mother. I think women of that generation really think you're doing things at them to to disown sort of their methodology of living as women and maybe when you're in your 20s that's a little true but as you get older you realize how much of your life you want to tether to those women
2: and that's what part of this book is also about. So you were a, a very young mother, and in what way did becoming a young mother shape your journey?
1: I think entirely it shaped my journey. I mean that that's not the whole answer, but that's the real meat of the answer. It, it informed every decision I ever made. Obviously, when you become a mother, your your entire purpose gets sort of inverted on you. And I only had a very small window of time where I could indulge in my own wants and needs. And so I think that created kind of a lifelong commitment to always making sure that I was really being effective with my work, with my time. I was very efficient. Not wasting time was a very big like vein running through my body. Like I have literally six hours to make sure that I'm contributing to the work I care about. Also in real literal ways and also in very bigger picture ways of making sure I had sort of a long road vision of my goals and also a daily sort of idea of how to accomplish this bigger picture. I'm very big picture driven. And so I think that that kind of creates you know, not a lot of time for social interaction, not a lot of time for doing some of the things that other people do. My hustle kind of sometimes turned people off. It's easy for people to assign negative traits to that. And so you kind of just have to keep going and you have to just kind of ignore the people that assume the worst of you while you're trying to sort of get, get ahead because you don't have the luxury. I'm not just trying to make money to feed a cat like I legitimately have a (laughs) life like I have a life to support for not just me but I help support those these four lives with this one other human being who works just as hard as I do and we're both so dedicated to our work as much as we're dedicated to our family I mean to and to simply answer your question having kids has informed every decision has has been the path and everything else has had to fall in line with how John and I have chosen to raise our kids, which is as two artists. I don't think either one of us walk around calling ourselves artists.
2: I don't know why, but it makes us both uncomfortable, but that's the truth of it. Well, you talk in the book about working at Margot's Cafe and how there was an expectation there that this was a family and to show how committed you were to the place, there was an expectation to hang out and be together and not being part of that family just didn't sit right with Margot herself, at least for a time, at least in the beginning, before she understood how committed you were. And as we know, there aren't a lot of moms in restaurants. How hard was that for you emotionally to, like, separate the two families or to know that you weren't meeting the expectation of this woman you so greatly admired?
1: It was hard, but also it was something I was very used to. I I don't like... The fact that I'm always sort of an outlier, <laughs> but that just seems to be the nature of the, the path I'm on. I've been an army brat my whole life and... And then when I finally did settle into Nashville, I realized very quickly I would make all of these dynamic friends who were my age, but they were 27. They were wanting to go out and have themed 80s prom birthdays. And, and I literally never could show up, and it felt like a snub to them. And they are all becoming mothers now, so I'm sure that they're connecting the dots that it wasn't because I didn't like them. I just couldn't afford to spend the time to create these social infrastructures and it was no different with my job I realized very quickly that one of my biggest downfalls with the restaurant industry was always going to be that my work was very important to me and I was going to give it my best and do my best while I was there and then I was going to go home and I didn't have the capacity to build that sort of social clout that people seem to really benefit from in the restaurant industry in particular. I think it's just hard for people to understand that perspective until they're in it. Being a parent is something I think people truly can't grasp the, the weight of until they are in it themselves and so I think I will perpetually sort of in that sense, I feel like my 20s and 30s, I spent as an outlier of all of my experiences, because I simply did not know anyone else who was raising a family while
2: dynamically trying to build and have a career. How do you think we change that going forward? I mean, the restaurant industry is in a moment of crisis, and we're trying to change so many things to make it sustainable. And it seems that the idea that restaurant life and parenting is not compatible seems like something that we could tackle and change like what visions do you have for that
1: well i think we're kind of seeing a generation of chefs now they're not young parents like i was but they're still becoming parents and i think they're informing a conversation i mean like look dave chang and chris ying have a whole dad podcast now and it's like really great to sort of hear but also i do kind of i'm like all right guys i'm glad that it's sanctioned now and those are two buddies of mine right like i'm like okay i kind of have a little bit of an eye roll because Fuck, I just spent 20 years in an industry kind of hiding the fact <laughs> that I had this whole other life because it just never fit. And it's so hard to talk on like what the restaurant industry should be doing right now because God bless them. I mean, they're just they're having the shit kicked out of them left and right, and it's so hard to sort of sit here and pontificate as a non-restaurant owner in this moment how they can do better. But I think this can be an opportunity if we can just get through this and buy some time god if if our government could just give them some time then I think we have the real potential to come out of this moment with real clear eyes about what the value is in our in our industry it's each other it's protecting and preserving our lives and and what our lives are worth on a day-to-day and I think for so long that was a forsaken idea So, you know, if we get out of this, we absolutely have to talk about sustainable wages and health insurance and how to work in this really messed up capitalistic system we have to promote and provide sustainable lives for the people that work with us and that's going to create professional servers professional cooks professional dishwashers people that aren't just transient workers like the restaurant industry is typically so fraught with you know and I really believed and I worked really hard to try to open this bakery in Nashville for Years and how women get funded in this country, especially for restaurants and small businesses, is a total joke. But having, you know, those conversations with investors about why I wanted to pay my head baker a certain amount of money and also bottom line my health benefits and make those a priority, how those conversations were met with borderline disdain and disgust. I mean, these people are millionaires, you know, these people own frickin' Hardee's. And after telling me that a head baker isn't worth... Sixty-five thousand dollars a year, which is barely middle class in this country. You know, Um, they would turn on their heel and present to me an opening budget to that that would afford them money to buy their handmade linen napkins from somebody that they know. And I'm like, you're not even thinking about what this means. You're not even thinking about labor costs to wash these things, wear and tear, and plus they cost more in one quarter than paying my head baker $65,000 a year. So, we're done here. And so, I think I think getting those people
2: squarely out of the restaurant industry business is a very important priority. Interesting. Well, I mean, you've had so many experiences. I was astonished to read that when you were at Husk, you were being paid hourly and at $15 an hour. Like that along with a few other stories, that just stopped me and my tracks, because you were such an important part of this, the story of that place and the success of that place. I don't want to lose the, the trail of motherhood for the moment, though. So you are the mother to a daughter. And you have, a, as you've described, sort of a chasm between you and your mother that also has a bridge. I mean, there's both. But in what way are you able to shape or reshape your relationship from the past with a new opportunity with your daughter?
1: I think in some ways my mom is the bridge for that question. And I think that's why I wanted to take so much time to sort of understand some of the pain and and frustrations I think she has felt as a woman in this world. Because regardless of how I bully them out of me every day, they still are there. They still exist in very many ways of this like incredibly crushing self-doubt and I know it's a common thing for everybody no no one wants to walk around and talk about like how little they value themselves in in any given scenario but I had to sort of face that For, for myself even though I work really hard every day to not succumb to it in some cases, I did succumb to it. The $15 an hour paid disparity thing with Sean doing it a favor, giving him all of my intellectual property to a company that neither one of us are even a part of anymore, you know, that's devaluing yourself. And so I really, really wanted to figure out why I could do that. And that's not to say it's my mother's fault. I, I got real, uh, almost physically kind of tired of, having the conversation with myself of how I could keep accommodating basically other people's shit behavior. I thought, you know, this is really time for me to unpack it. I had no idea that when I wrote this book, it would go back to my grandfather, whom, again, I I carry a deep sense of love and care for, but also can admit there's some contributing factors to his very distinct and very identifiable southern uh, Mississippi, early 20th century. You can romanticize it by calling it grit and tenacity, but there's also this There's this side that's a very painful side. And I I talk about these things in the book and I didn't really know I was going to go there. And it was hard for me to go there. And I knew it was going to be hard on my mom to go there as well. It's harder than I thought it was going to be to have this conversation with my mom because she's done a lot of work to, I think, protect herself from these conversations. Because in all fairness, that's what you have to do at some point. And I think a lot of women of that generation... Have, have protected themselves from things that all of us can see. Um, and I just I think a lot of the daughters don't want to carry with them anymore, especially those of us who are raising young women.
2: So you and your mother hadn't necessarily talked through all the things that you had learned when you were sort of going back through your family history and then realizing where the seeds of some of this self-doubt came from. Is that what you're saying?
1: <sighs> you know, I thought we had. <laughs> I I honestly I was making a lot of phone calls I was including her sister whom I'm very close to my aunt And I was including her brother, whom I'm a little estranged from because he's a little bit of a tricky character. But I called him and I was really trying my best. Part of the problem in this side of my family is after my grandmother died, we were all so deeply mired in all of her, all of her. (laughs) Like, like, I want to bring up all these examples, but we truly we all were of her. What's one example that you could just mention for example for me personally this wasn't everyone else's example but we shared a bed together most of my life i always felt like she was there even when she wasn't we would you know say our prayers at night together and she was constantly making me little tokens to remember her by these embroidered hello cases she would tether little things into the seams of my clothes just small day-to-day things and then larger things. She just felt like such a large presence and still does. And I think anyone that comes from any kind of Mexican traditional family will tell you it's a real looming presence of the, the matriarch. And she was definitely almost a saintly version of that. And I think in, in some strange sense, her identity in my family when she was gone Uh, really sort of became such a troubling thing for everyone to reconcile. I think part of the obstacle with writing about this part of my family was that after she died, stories just sort of devolved into everyone else's version of the experiences. And so I was telling my mom, you know, she's like, you got a couple of details wrong. And I said, well, what? And she was like, well, this and that, and they were small details. And I said, well, what I had to kind of do mom was take all of these stories from three different people and basically do what religious scholars do is like find an ex-gospel and try to like find the the one potential, you know, nugget of actual truth because it's both been sort of mystified and buried. I really wanted to maintain deep honesty and integrity while also trying to, you know, really care for the people I was writing about. And these are people, for the most part, not everybody in the book, but most of the people I write about, I love deeply. And so, when you're living in the space of writing a memoir, that's all you're doing. That's all you. It's all you're thinking about. And I can probably assign now to myself that I didn't manage expectations as well as I could have. And if you can hear this and not attribute like negative aspects to the word, I was so depleted. I just spent over three years working on this one thing. I think I was out of courage even maybe my well was empty I had given this everything I had and there was some satisfaction to that you know I think anybody that writes or makes will tell you it's a double-edged sort of understanding of the word depleted where you're like this feels good I exhausted everything that I had I know I gave it my all but also I have no more to give I can't make another fucking phone call right now and just say like (laughs) are we good everyone understand and so I gave myself permission to sit with just the fact that it was done for a while. And so I think that was probably looking back the time I should have mustered some more and realized I wasn't actually done. But what can you do? Hindsight 2020.
2: (laughs) Well, it took a ton of courage to write that book. I congratulate you on that. With that, we're going to take a break and we'll be right back.
0: I'm Lisa Held, a food journalist and podcast host, presenting Behind the Label with American Humane. Produced by Heritage Radio Network for Springer Mountain Farms, this podcast series dives into what the American Humane Certified Label really means. We're looking inside the farm certification process, beginning with the moment a farmer expresses interest in becoming American Humane Certified, all the way to a consumer seeing the seal on store shelves.
2: And American Humane is our country's first national humane organization founded way back in 1877. Now we
1: certify nearly 1 billion farm animals each and every year. Despite that growth uh, roughly 90% of U.S. farm animals are still raised without the benefit of independently verified science-based standards.
0: Subscribe to Behind the Label with American Humane wherever you listen to
2: podcasts. Welcome back. This is Dana Cowan and you're listening to Speaking Broadly with guest Lisa Donovan. I loved the story of getting MFK Fisher's book and what a moment that was for you. Can you just talk about what reading has meant and how reading unleashed the writing or helped propel it forward
1: reading i think is such the seed for everything for me in so many ways it's been my gateway to baking. It's been my gateway to travel. It's been my gateway now to learning about a bunch of things I didn't know about as a white woman in this world. And so that's always been sort of how I have educated myself. And even though I did go to college, I went to college with a kid on my hip. And so I have always, always had a stack of books somewhere near me. Finding that MFK Fisher book was very similar to me finding all of those early books five or six, seven years earlier about Uh, Artisan Baking, where I knew something was festering or germinating or evolving. And I was like, there's something here and I know I'm ready for... There have been a couple of moments like that in my life where I can identify that I'm about to have like this phase seven of evolution you know like okay this is your chance take this seriously move up push yourself a little farther you're tired but you can keep moving and this is how because it was also the time when I was like why am I doing all this baking I know it's making us a little bit of extra money every month but I'm tired and then you find these reasons and these reasons present themselves to you and all of a sudden I had a larger understanding of Community and food, and that conversation of making something beautiful from not having, not even from nothing, but from not having, from really, really understanding and sitting with that feeling of lack and creating something not even for yourself, but for other people, and understanding that the trick isn't making more for you, but getting something from making more for other people and there was a real opportunity there because you know I was inching towards 30 I think I was 26 maybe and uh we were struggling we had this new baby we had a five-year-old we had too many animals in our house and like we couldn't even afford to feed our dog you know we like literally got to the point where it was cheaper to buy a big cheap bag of rice steam him rice every day put some nutritional yeast powder and a raw egg because a friend of ours would always bring us eggs she had chickens and would bring us free eggs every week and he got the bulk of them and the kids got the bulk of them and he would have this awesome feast he was this very old dog that thankfully didn't need to eat much anyway and so we would make him this like ridiculously luxurious but totally cheap cheaper than dog food feast (laughs) and so we were just finding all of these ways to sustain and to keep everything from just falling completely off the cliff. And that book came in that moment when I was like, I don't, I don't have any more tricks. (laughs) No more tricks. And then all of a sudden it opened up some, some crazy part of my soul, my inside, my heart, my capabilities, something, something opened. And and I had got just a little
2: bit evolution phase seven or whatever it was happened. So I was, I was interested throughout the book. You're just filled with these feelings that seem deep and old and always there but you come across them at different times and they shape you in different ways. And I was wondering do you feel that's unique and if it's not unique then how do? other people recognize those moments because I feel like as we go through our lives we're always looking for that sign and sometimes we feel like we totally miss them you on the other hand I feel like you're so attuned and you're so thoughtful that you can see these or feel these reverberations and then they they change your life so how do you find them and how do you recognize them It
1: sounds like I'm bragging now that you put it that way, but I don't mean to. I wish that I could stop paying attention to them sometimes. (laughs) It took me 42 years to be able to say to myself, you're a deeply sensitive person, and that's okay. <laughs> like, I, I think for so long that had some kind of negative connotation in my space and my world, like being sensitive meant you were touchy or whatever. But not even with myself, and this is going to probably sound ridiculous and very hooey, but like, I have to make a very distinct effort when I walk into a room to manage and mitigate the the vibrations in a room and I, I I'm hesitant to to talk about things in a in a way that might sound like a fucking hippie, but like really I just I wish that I could not feel things so deeply all of the time that is just now starting to feel like a superpower instead of a weakness like a deficit in my life <laughs> because for so long it just was like i wish i could just stop he- listening and feeling this expectation like I'm, I'm constantly holding myself accountable to those feelings and and it's taken me a long time to not hold other people accountable to those feelings if i'm being real like I am very private about it, you know, but I also can see very clearly sometimes other people's motivations uh, in a way that makes me not want to look that way. I wish I could just be like, I'll take that at face value. No big deal. I'll be over here. But I think about it and I brew on it and then I write about it and I've got... Jesus, Dana, I've got so many piles of things about just someone's decision publicly to do this thing that I'll never publish. It was just my really raw take on it. And I mean, I often wonder like, God, am I just like the most exhausting person to be around? I don't know how to small talk. I don't know how to like just do anything casually. Everything's gotta be some like big feelings.
2: So I don't don't know if it's always good. I I wonder whether like that character trait of like wanting to go deeper and wanting to have the conversations and having these sensitivities is part of what helped you form these transformative relationships with extraordinary women. Maybe not as soon as you would have liked, but eventually that has sort of shaped a part of your life. I started to get really worried that it wasn't ever going (laughs) to happen for me because of
1: just, you know, the, the busyness of my life and, and the busyness of work and the busyness of child rearing and being a wife and wanting to be dedicated to all of those things, you know, with equity, it doesn't leave a whole lot of time to sort of (laughs) have strong relationships with other women. And so, you know, I started to wonder in my thirties, like, when do I get to have my women where are my women and all of a sudden as soon as I was hungry for it and wanting for it it just started to slowly build itself and I started meeting the Angie Mosiers and the Ann Marshalls and the Chidi Kumars and the Rebecca Wilcombs you know I started meeting these women who have similar qualities whenever we're all on a zoom call my husband he is always just like I have no idea how you guys found each other but Jesus fucking Christ (laughs) He's like, it's like a supernova. He's like, it is the craziest collection of women. It is truly, truly, absolutely. I think one of, I'm, I'm tearing up a little bit. <laughs> like it's one of the biggest rewards of my life.
2: How did you find them? And how do you nurture those relationships?
1: Um, Oh, we nurture each other. There's just such an understanding. We found each other just uh, bouncing around this industry in in all various ways. And when we met each other, I think we instantly all just knew we all met at different times. And then somehow this little union of four or five or six of us kind of got formed. And we have such grace with each other and such patience and kindness and understanding and also this real important like no bullshit like (laughs) there's 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 no way that any of us are going to let the other get away with any kind of bullshit or go too hard on ourselves either I think we all are harder on ourselves than we are anybody. And so from that place, we take such good care of each other. That's something that's very sort of like organically that has happened. You know, like uh, my book release was on Tuesday of this past week. And one of my dearest friends, Angie Mosier, I didn't hear from her all day. And she texted me late at night she's a photographer and she's like I have been doing this job all day and she wrote this long text just full of apologies and it was also like none of that mattered the tardiness of her text and that was one of the most important notes I got all day because everything she said after the real apology that she didn't need was the meat of like her saying to me like I'm so glad the rest of the world gets to finally see you the way I see you and hear you the way I hear you. And just saying all of the the things that she knows, and it would be the same other way around. And that's such a beautiful, beautiful thing, because not all people are like that. I've had lots of friends where if I didn't go to their party, that was it. We weren't friends anymore. So the grace and the, the real importance of our relationships is just simply how clearly we see each other and how much we care for each other like in a tender
2: tender way there have been some extraordinary women guides for you and i'm i'm thinking now of alice randall i'd love for you to just talk about that that notion of how meeting a singular person can open up a whole world to you.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, Alice Randall, I think, will forever be just someone I look at and hope I can build the kind of valuable work. She has actually a book coming out, too, and she just is full of that constant drive and she's always thinking and she's always challenging and she's always ready to go deep. There's no small talk with Alice. There's no little conversations. And I can remember I drove her home after we all had a dinner last summer, I think it was. Uh, This year feels like a decade. And uh, we sat in my car um, as we sat outside of her apartment downtown and she talked to me about writing for an hour in my car about publishing in particular and about copy editing. We were just having a conversation as two writers, which was really exciting for me because I'd never gotten to be in that seat with her. I'd been a budding writer as someone who was trying to sort of build the kind of experiences that would allow me to have the right to have a career like hers. And she was always there to give me advice. And I'll never consider her a peer. Let's say that first. <laughs> I consider her a, a, a deity. <laughs> and so, but I sat there with her feeling, with her being generous and treating me as a peer, treating me as a writer, saying very honest things, being really frank, being really and just being funny and and trying to just tell me her experiences. And I hold that experience as one of the most valuable experiences of my uh, writing career.
2: Did she tell you anything that you're like, I will never forget that one thing. And if I'm ever lucky enough to be in this position where I'm sitting in a car with someone who is just coming up, I want to remember to tell them this thing that I was told tonight.
1: I mean, the funniest thing that she told me was super proud of you for getting this first book deal. Your second book deal is probably going to come. Did you get a two book deal? And I was like, someone had advised me against it. I One book deal and I'll try to get a second book deal. She's like, you'll get a second book deal but let me tell you about the third book deal. <laughs> She's like, that third book deal is, is the one that'll kill you. It was like she managing my expectations and like just talking about the cycles of publishing and she'd seen it all. And the other thing that I really took to heart was her saying, even if you find yourself in a publishing house that you love and with editors that you love, which are all of the above true for me, I mean, super, super shout out to Penguin Press, because I tell you what, man, they have have been soldiers for me and my vision with this book. But she sat there with me and said, just make sure, Lisa, that you set your intentions and you are the only one that gets to mitigate or change those expectations of this book. So that was hugely important to hear, even though I have felt so fortunate in my relationship with my publisher.
2: That sounds like an extraordinary spell of time. It it brings to mind the Diana Kennedy story, where Diana Kennedy also seems to have had a sort of a pivotal conversation with you. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Oh,
1: sure. You know that dinner was epic. I mean, that was my first time to San Francisco. That was like, I think it was the second or third time Kelly Fields and I had partnered on a dinner together. And it was for La Cocina, which is a very important organization in San Francisco. And uh, it was a benefit for their 10th anniversary, I think. And it was to honor Diana Kennedy's work as well. So, she was the guest of honor. They had a bunch of podcast recordings. She was floating around for 2 days. We all got to move around in a little posse together which was like, "What? Oh my god." You know, we walked into a couple of kitchens to tour so that they could meet Miss Kennedy and I literally would walk into each room and just find a wall and press my back up against it because I was like, "What the fuck is this? What am I doing right now? I'm in that like I'm literally diana kennedy's entourage right now (laughs) she's just swishing around in her leather pants and her turquoise jewels and just being god this incredible she's not even i can't i know she's a human being but god she's just so otherworldly and remarkable and i adore every way she comes at this world and you know we served the dinner kelly and i had been planning this menu for you know months and um we did this beautiful it was a cornmeal tres leches cake but we used like i brought buttermilk from tennessee I and mean, that's that's how I make my tres leches cake and and Kelly brought the cake because she makes this really beautiful dense cornmeal cake that was perfect for like absorbing all of this liquid and then I made a kayata ice cream and then when we got there I found these beautiful apricots which I write about in the book <laughs> to put on top I mean it was just a simple it was very much like Kelly and Lisa's style, and it was very Southern pastry chef style. We're a good team for a lot of reasons. And we pulled off this dinner and at the end of the night, a couple of people run in and call us out of the kitchen and she pulls us out of the kitchen to tell us that that was the best dessert she ever had which like, it was like the capstone was just like the end oh I couldn't even my knees were just weak all weekend anyway and now it was like uh, this is the part where I just fall straight down and of course like Kelly's just always so cool and like not in even an arrogant or shitty way she's just is cool and nothing phases her and she's like awesome and I'm like (laughs) and and so Kelly gets pulled away and I have this really unreal I'm pretty sure there was like a light behind her that made her look like a halo and everything (laughs) <laughs> and I'm like looking at Diana Kennedy and she is, you know, re- really blunt and really doesn't mint any words and and was basically like, which part did you make? And I was like, well, Kelly made the cake and I just made all the things that, you know, soaked it and went on it and da, da, da. And she was like, oh, the flavor. Okay, the flavor. And like, well, then if you're this good, how come I don't know who you are? And I was like, ah, And I started to say, well, the world doesn't really pay attention to the South yet and all these things. And, you know, who knows? Who knows why? But I didn't even have a chance to say that before she was like, I know why. And then proceeds to say the the thing, which is, you know, sort of became this other moment of like evolution phase 12 was like you know maybe you should stop letting men tell your story and that was basically like her turning on her heel to go see her audience and I was like well shit I must have been wearing that all over me because it was also during that time of like Every, you know, male chef I ever worked for just was building them, themselves houses and more restaurants and getting national notoriety and male pastry chefs were in the news all of the time. Even ones that I admired and loved and respected would just get all of this airtime talking about how they do what they do because of their mamas because of their mothers and their aunts and their grandmamas. And look at how I'm building my career on this sort of humble humble beginnings of just loving my mama, you know? And it's like, fuck off, I'm a mother. I can't make a living and I can cook as good as you. (laughs) And so, like, I must have been wearing it. I must have been whatever. I don't know why she knew that's what I needed to hear. I don't know. But it was right in the height of that moment of realization that I was in an industry that would always create a space to revere women. But also then I think I even write like we revere women straight into abjection, you know, in our in our culture where, yeah, it's great. But what what kind of lives do we get to sort of create for ourselves that aren't just as idols or support staff for men? So so that that was a real like something definitely got flipped in my head then where I was like, God damn, she's right. And if I don't start trying to tell my story about my food, my son will have to do it one day.
2: I have touched a couple of times on money. It was a driver of so much of your early years and just scraping by, I love how you really got to be an expert at taking care of like the finances, but in the scrappiest kind of a way. How do you think about the role of money in becoming who you are and finding your voice? Like what holds you back? And what could be possibly enabling?
1: Well, I think it's a good time to say that when people are barely living uh, above the poverty level, which a lot of people in our country are it's increasingly difficult to be a positive like contributing member of society (laughs) you know and I think that as a country we really lose sight of how hard it is for families to support themselves and also really strive for better education strive for better opportunities for themselves and their and their kids and so I think Having the conversation about money for me is much bigger picture than how it maybe affected me and how I see it constantly affecting just the working class. And I think there's a real uh, misunderstanding. a big frustration of mine and John's has constantly been the seeming lack of true understanding of what it means if, okay, you open a restaurant, you hire somebody, you're not really paying them much, but they know that they're willing to earn up and work hard. Um, But then you as a restaurant decide that on your first year, and this is an experience that I actually had, you know, the owner salaried, the sous chef salaried, the GM salaried, but everybody else is day-to-day And I think for people who um, have never actually been close to poverty or in poverty, don't understand what closing a restaurant for a week does to a family. They don't really have the capacity to understand that a Christmas vacation that a restaurant is going to take for three weeks is a moment of peril for a family because you're not getting paid <laughs> and you need those hours and you need that work and you need consistency and you need your employer to care about those dark moments that they decide to to take a holiday. One of the first restaurants I worked at this the first year had this crazy schedule where it I think on paper seemed like a good idea because I think uh, in some ways the the owners were trying to in- initiate the first sort of beta version of, let's all have a sustainable schedule and would, you know, close a week for a Super Bowl. And it was like, that was when they would choose their holiday. And, uh, and then they'd be closed a couple of weeks during the summer. And on paper, you can understand like, well, that's good for restaurants, they should take care of themselves and have time off. But the thing is, we don't live in a country that supports that. In France, they can be closed a month every year because their culture and government in some ways supports that lifestyle. We don't have that. And so I think people really have a a real expanse of misunderstanding between when families like mine at the time say, we're really dangerously close to not being able to survive here, what that actually means. We've literally cut trees down of public parks to put in our fireplace because we couldn't keep our heat on. Like we're talking like Charles Dickens shit here, you know, like we we definitely were working way too hard to not be able to survive. So, you know, that for me, like paved my way and I'm I'm scrappy and I can make something out of nothing. I'll say yes to any work, basically. I mean, right now I, I'm saying yes to private chef jobs just because I don't want to ever lose the ability to have that work. And in, in a lot of ways, we don't necessarily need that right now. And I would love to just be full time trying to forge ahead as a writer, but I'll never not have that insecurity. I could have... in the bank which has never happened yet yet see how I say yet (laughs) but I will go to the grocery store and have deep anxiety about my card not working till the day I die so in some ways yeah like it's a little debilitating sometimes Um, but I think the reason I want to talk about money is because I want people who have never felt that financial insecurity i think it's really important for you to
2: understand how how desperate it is at the end of each podcast i ask my guests two questions one and this might be very very hard for you is to give a shout out broadly to a woman who you believe more people need to know about i say hard because i just know there's more than 10 Mount Rushmores of amazing women that you'd probably want to give a shout out to. But who would you like to give a shout out to today? I got asked
1: the same question by Kat Kinsman and my answer was Erica Council and my answer is still Erica Council. (laughs) And I think she's definitely gotten, you know, more attention and more notoriety. She's a baker in um, Atlanta, Georgia. And all the while that like me and Kelly Fields and Cheryl Day have been hustling the Southern baking conversation. She's been right alongside us and she is, uh, bar none, the best baker of us all. <laughs> I shouldn't say that about Sherilyn Kelly. I just think that she is such a valuable player, such a strong baker with such an important history. And right now she's got, I think her her website has historically always been Southern Souffle, but she has just started this new pop-up um called bomb biscuits uh and it's a both a pop-up and a delivery service around atlanta and i uh, it just looks like the finest thing you could ever experience
2: <laughs> so of course i immediately want to know you know is she's selling nationally does she freeze them and ship them because i i love a good biscuit yeah
1: well this is this is my pitch to her publicly that she absolutely should do that and what i'm hoping because i can't get them either and so what i'm hoping is is that the next evolution of this for her is like a frozen shipment that we can all experience because i tell you what i mean even if you just look at a picture of her of her biscuits you're, you're like it's too much it's too much she's and she's got this remarkably like incredible um heritage of black chefs in georgia that Everyone should explore, and I just think she's one of the finest people on the planet too. She's just such a good lady, and she's a mother. And she kind of suffers from that same. Uh, uh, she doesn't suffer. I I just think that culturally we all suffer as women, but she sort of suffers from that strange thing of people not knowing where to place her because uh, she does not. She, I don't know that she works in restaurants altogether that much, and she tries to balance her role as a mother uh, and a, and as a really important southern baker. She, she makes that work for herself, which I think is, you know, it always takes a little bit more effort for the public to figure out where to put people who aren't <laughs> always just restaurant chefs.
2: I'm, I'm delighted to learn about her and I will dive into her history, that's fantastic. And the, the last question is, is there a product or an ingredient that you think is better than the hype, something that everyone should use that they don't you know what
1: I've been really into over the pandemic is spices and it started because I think I would just like inadvertently pick up spices on my travels and that was easy and then I wasn't traveling and I use spices so regularly and I'm also getting a little lazy I think like everyone else in my cooking and so I'm having a little bit of a harder time like inspiring myself but what has been inspiring to me are two spice companies and I'm like oh I'm going to order that and burlap and barrel is one of them and they're based out of Brooklyn. And someone sent me a huge gift shipment of all of their things. And they have a lot of pre-mixed spices as well that you should totally check out. And then um, Diaspora Company is a really good one. And someone gifted me uh, some of their pepper. Uh, Those are two companies I'm super pumped about. And they both are just fine, fine products, like really good, really high quality. And I I think everything's sustainable. I think the really beautiful thing about um, Diaspora Company is that is woman color, queer-owned, like, really incredible company. So I'm excited about Spices right now because they make everything better.
2: Well, I just want to thank you so much, Lisa, for coming on to Speaking Broadly. I've, I've loved talking to you, and um, there's, I'm sure we have another lifetime of conversation to, to have because your book is rich and deep and purposeful and beautiful, and I everyone should go, um, go buy it. It must be an interesting time to publish a book in the middle of a pandemic but lots of people are reading so there's a great opportunity i hope i send all you listeners out to to buy the book and i hope i see you either virtually or in person sometime soon so thank you for joining me thank you all you listeners for joining us today and we'll be back next week with another episode of speaking broadly thanks thanks dana